Genesis 29, verses 1 through 35, found on page 23 of the Pew Bible. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of the well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. And they said, he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? And he said, they said, it is well, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day, and it is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served him seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go in for to her. For my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you, serve you, serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, 
he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. This is the word of God. Let's pray with me. Father in heaven, we come before you and before your word, and we thank you that you have given it to us. We thank you that you have said that your word is alive and active. You have said that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides bone and marrow, you said. You said it divides our actions and even our intentions. There is nothing that is hidden before your word. You have said that your word is powerful and that it brings life. Father, these are promises that you have said about your word. And they are promises that we need today. And so, Father, I pray that you would cause your word to accomplish that for which you have sent it today. Father, we thank you for the public reading of your word. Father, you know the hearts of the women and men, the boys and the girls who are here today. You know the hearts that are the youngest who are able to pay attention and the oldest who are able to pay attention. You know what we need and you know what you're doing. Father, I pray that above all, at different points throughout this afternoon, you would draw each of us into worship. And worshiping and seeing Christ, we would behold his glory. And that we as image bearers, women and men created in your image, that we would be transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. Holy Spirit, we know that that is done by your power and by your hand, so we ask you to be at work. We give you praise and thanksgiving, but even before we see what you accomplish. And so, Father, we come into your presence. We thank you and praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> we have said it over and over. If you're looking for heroes in this story of Isaac and Jacob, it's hard to find. Um, if you struggle and you wonder if God is done with you, if you wonder uh, if you just haven't made it far enough along in your life, uh, it's a great place for you to be, a great place for you and I to think and to consider uh, what is the story that we tell ourselves. In this evangelism class, um, we were talking about the idea of a gospel and that everyone has a gospel story that they tell themselves. The gospel story has five things that we all tell ourselves. What does it mean to be human? Uh, where are we as human beings? Uh, what time is it in the scope of history? What's the problem and what's the solution? What do you think about those things in your own life? How do you consider them in your own perception of the world in which we live? 
Mari and I were talking at a staff meeting this week, and um, believe it or not, one of my pleasures is Taylor Swift listening, and I think it reminds me of my daughter when she and I used to spend afternoons climbing together when she was young, and we would listen to Taylor Swift's uh, Our Song is the Slamming Screen Door. Uh, sneaking out late and tapping on your window. And I thought about that today, and I thought, I can't believe I used to sing that song with my daughter. Like, that is, you talk about mixed messages. I mean, have mercy. Uh, but Taylor Swift has stuck with me. Um, I actually like some of the later things that she's done, some of her um, duets with different singers that I really enjoy. And Mari's like, well, you've heard her new album, haven't you? And I was like, no, really? Taylor Swift has a new album. And, of course, Mita rolled her eyes when I told her the story. And uh, <clears throat> Mari said, well, you got to look into this one song called Antihero. And I was like, really? And she goes, yeah. She said, one of my friends back from my college days at Wheaton said, Taylor Swift has gone all G.K. Chesterton on us in this song. And she goes, Bradley, this is your job. Go this week and figure out what in the world does that guy mean, because I don't understand it. The question that our passage poses for the statement, the theme that we have before us is simply what we have been saying, that God's sovereign purposes are not thwarted by human sinfulness. What is your story about the problem of the world? In Taylor Swift's song, Antihero, she answers that question simply by saying this, it is me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. That's the chorus. What does that have to do with G.K. Chesterton? Once, this famous philosopher was asked, what is wrong with the world? And he simply answered, I am. God's sovereign purposes are not thwarted by human sinfulness. We need to hear this for two reasons today. One is for ourselves, and one is for each other. I want to show you the way it's for ourselves in verses 1 through 14, and I want to show you why it's our comprehension of each other in verses 15 through 35 of this story of Jacob finding Leah and Rachel to be his wives. God's sovereign purposes are not thwarted by human sinfulness. What do you see in verses 1 through 14? <clears throat> did it ring true to you? Did, you? did you hear that and you thought, wait, I've heard this before? Because if you were listening to Genesis read, and you were just listening to it read in one fell swoop, it would sound immediately familiar to you from chapter 24 when Abraham's servant went to look for Isaac's wife. Remember Abraham told his servant, do not take a wife from among the Canaanites, but rather go to my people and take a wife from my brother for my son Isaac, right? That's what he told him. That plan was set up, and this story of Jacob going back to Haran to find a wife is paralleled with chapter 24. There's a difference in this, and the context of Jacob's journey is actually found in chapter 28. 
It's found when God promises to Jacob that he is going to bless him and he is going to be with him. Do you remember what he says to Jacob? He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to your offspring. You sh your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then he said this uniquely, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. The context of this story is in this promise of God. I will not leave you. But the contrast of this story is the prayerfulness of Isaac's servant versus Jacob. Go back this week and read chapter 24 and read chapter 29 right together. Go back and notice how over and over and over, no fewer than five times, does Isaac's servant stop and pray, asking God to bless him, asking God to give him wisdom, praising God when something comes to pass, giving God the glory when he explains the story, and then as his mission is accomplished, bowing down and worshiping God, even in the presence of those who don't. Contrast that with Jacob, who not once in our story, not once prays. Not once. In verse 7, we see Jacob try to gain control. You heard it when he came to the well and he saw the shepherds there and then he saw Rachel coming and he tried to gain control and say, you guys get out of here. Water the sheep and go. I want to talk to this woman by myself. We see it in verse 10 when he goes according to his own perception, what he saw, what he desires, what he goes after. We see it in verse 10 also when it's repeated three times, Laban, his mother's brother, Laban, his mother's brother, Laban, his mother's brother, his fortune to have found his family. We see it in verse 11 when he's overwhelmed with his emotions. He kisses Rachel, he weeps, and he says, this is who I am, this is how I have come to you. And then in verses 13 through 15, we see how ready he is to accept Laban's acceptance. You are flesh and bone of mine. I welcome you into my house. And he kisses him and he hugs him and he brings him in. What is interesting is that God's promises for his people are to engender relationship. And instead of that, what we see in Jacob is complete presumption. The idea that this is prayerless in his life, this quest to find a wife, can't be anything other than presumption. Even in the way that we heard Jacob pray last week demonstrates that presumption. I was reading another part of the Bible this week when Saul, God's anointed king, ends up breaking God's law and offering a sacrifice when he wasn't supposed to because he just couldn't wait on God's timing, Samuel comes to him and says, God's going to take away your kingdom because of what you have done. And then he says this line with regard to presumption. He says to Saul, rebellion is as divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. 
made me scratch my head for a minute. How is presumption, just presuming, of course God is going to be with me. How is that like iniquity and idolatry? I think what Samuel is saying, what the scripture teaches us about presumption, is that we presume upon God that he is going to give us what we want. When we worship an idolatry, what you do to an idol is that you sacrifice things when you request what you want. And other than that, you have nothing to do with the idol. There's no relationship there. And what we see in Jacob's life is no relationship at all. And I have a question to ask you. What in your faith points to relationship with God rather than presumption? What in your faith points to relationship to God rather than presumption? Of course God is going to bless me. One of the major aspects of that is the concept of worshiping. And I would even encourage you, stop. Take a moment now. Worship the God who is in relationship with you. We need to hear this that God's sovereign purposes are not thwarted by human sinfulness because of ourselves. We see it in Jacob, and we ought to hear this story and go, God, please, keep me from presumptuous sin. Remind me that I'm in relationship with you. What in your faith points to relationship rather than presumption? The second reason that we need to hear that God's sovereign purposes are not thwarted by human sinfulness is so that we can see others and even allow others to be broken. I don't know what Taylor Swift meant when she said, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. But when Chesterton said, what's wrong with the world, I am, He did not mean that everything in the world that was broken was his own fault. That's not what he meant. He meant, as a human race, we are. And the reason we need to consider that God's sovereign purposes are not thwarted by human sinfulness is so that we can see and allow others to be broken. And see, this is what Jacob failed to do in verses 15 through 16. He missed Laban, he missed Leah, and he missed God's directing. How did he miss Laban? Well, one point that I would show you is just simply in verse 15. When Laban turns to Jacob and he asks him in verse 15, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall shall your wages be? To us and to our ears, we go, man, that sounds pretty gracious to him. He's not going to just kind of get free work out of him. But what he's really telling Jacob, who was longing for family, I found Laban, my mother's brother, my mother's brother, my mother's brother, who loved Jacob more than anybody else in the world, his mother. He found his family. He found where he belonged. Guess what Laban was telling him? You are not part of my family. You are a hired laborer. Now, what are your wages going to be? But Jacob misses that. He misses seeing that God's sovereign purposes are not thwarted by human sinfulness because his eyes are fixed on what he wants his wages to be, right? And who does he choose? 
he chooses Rachel, Laban's younger daughter. Laban deceives Jacob left and right. We're about to get to the big one in just a minute. But Jacob also misses Leah. And I'm just going to give you a brief picture of this because we're actually going to end looking at her a little bit more. Verses 16 and 18. Jacob looks past Leah. Leah is described as having weak eyes. Whatever that is, we know for certain that it is pit against or contrasted by Rachel, who is beautiful in both form and appearance, right? Jacob misses Leah, but there's something in Leah that we need to see if we're going to be convinced that God's sovereign purposes are not thwarted by human sinfulness. But Jacob also misses God's directing. The context of Jacob's deception by Laban is one of sensuality, it's one of drunkenness, and it's one of deceit. Jacob comes to Laban after seven years of service and in a very crass way says, give me your daughter, it's my time. It's interesting that you hear nothing of Rachel's heart for Jacob in the whole narrative of Jacob and Rachel. It's a really interesting thing. Jacob is driven by sensuality. We're told that Laban throws a great feast. The root of that word for feast is a drinking party. This is a party in which Jacob is so drunk that on the wedding night, when he is to go in and be with Leah, or with Rachel rather, he's so drunk that he doesn't understand that his father-in-law has switched daughters on him. He had been in love with her for seven years. He knew everything about this woman. But not that night. And he missed what God was doing. He demanded afterward, Rachel, Laban, what is this that you have done? Laban saw a chance to get seven more years out of him. Seven more years of hard work. Bring it. He's the guy that can move the stone off the well himself. In Jewish lore, Jacob is a giant. And Laban thinks, I can get more work. And Jacob goes after Rachel as well. God's design is not for a man to marry a sister and then her sister as well, a woman and her sister as well. When God calls his people out of Egypt and gives them the law, he'll stipulate the fact that you are not to marry a woman and her sister. This isn't God's design. But Jacob grabs what he intends to take, and he misses God's directing. I have a second question for you before we turn to close. What is a present situation in your life, a present situation in your life in which you need to ask, God, what are you doing? God, would you please make me more sensitive to your will being worked out instead of just what I want? 
Because to believe that God's sovereign will is not thwarted by human sinfulness allows you to see other people and to even allow them to be broken. I know that some of you feel like you look at the other people in this congregation and you say, you don't know how hard my life is and nobody else's life is hard. (laughs) And good night. All of us go, what? But believing that God's sovereign will is not thwarted by human sinfulness allows us to see others and allows us to allow others to be broken. How does this passage end? If we were to end there, we would go, wow, that's not a very uplifting message. you got to give me more. Well, thank you, the passage doesn't end there. We have verses 31 through 35. And what do we see there? I asked you in the beginning, what is the gospel that you tell yourself? Who are you? Where are you? What time is it? What's the problem? What's the solution, right? Well, what's Leah's gospel? What do you hear in 31 through 35? The first thing that you read when you read it is that God saw Leah. Did anyone else see Leah in this whole story? That answer is no. Laban used Leah. He never saw her. Jacob didn't see her at all that night. He just used her. But God saw Leah. What did he see in Leah that we need to see? We're certain of this about Leah when it says that Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was beautiful both in form and appearance. This is what we're certain of. We're certain of Leah that in the society in which she and Rachel lived, she was unattractive compared to Rachel. But we move too quickly when we just think about attraction the way we think about it. The focus of this unattractiveness is actually on her eyes. Other translations read soft, tender, lovely. We don't know how to translate this word, and it's most likely idiomatic. What do I mean by an idiom? Students, you know this. When I ask you what an idiom is, you might raise your hand and say, I know one. You got by by the skin of your teeth. What does that mean? Does that mean your teeth have skin? Of course it doesn't. It means that you barely made it through, right? Another one, I'm feeling kind of under the weather today, right? What does under the weather mean? It doesn't mean that you're under rain. It means that you don't feel well, right? Most scholars likely will say, that there's something going on with this concept of Rachel having weak eyes. Some commentators say it's the weakness of her eyes that she wept a lot. Redness, tearful, that she knew sorrow. It is often the case in the Hebrew Scriptures that the very first words that someone utters plays deeply into their character. And if you allow that to be, the first words that she says when God allows her to become pregnant with Reuben 
is that God has seen my affliction. It is likely that what was most unattractive about Rachel, or about Leah, in her society, was her ability to know sorrow. Which came first, the fact that she was less attractive than her sister? It's certainly possible. But she knew sorrow. She knew what it was to be unloved. She knew the problem. But listen to the naming of her children. God has given me one child. Now my husband will love me. God has given me another child. Now my husband won't hate me. God has given me a third child that now I will find favor in my husband's eyes. But finally by the end, she says, God has given me a fourth son, and we, I, this time, she says, of the fourth son, I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Leah was moved to the place of confidence that God saw her in the midst of sorrow. Leah is the wife that God chose for Jacob. How can I be sure of that? Fourth child, Judah. Who comes from Judah? The lineage of King David. Who comes from the lineage of King David? Jesus Christ. Savior of the world. In God's sovereignty, God saw her and God moved toward her, and God blessed her with himself. Leah says, I will praise the Lord. But God didn't stop there, because God became like Where else do you see beauty, form, and appearance referenced in the scriptures? In the description of the suffering servant of God, Isaiah 53. Jesus, we are told by Isaiah 53, that he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Francesca prayed it. Did you hear it in her prayer? Jesus, you are a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He bore our grief and he carried our sorrows. Jesus was convinced that God's sovereign purposes were not thwarted by human sinfulness. 
Why is this important to you? Because Jesus knows you. He knows you. And he is revealing himself to you that you would be convinced that the Father loves you. Jesus knows that you and I are the problem and that he is the solution. You see, the danger of Christianity is that it always takes us to the precipice of hopelessness. And it has to. Children, the reason that we talk about sin is because Christianity has to take you to the place where you cannot save yourself. And at the edge of that precipice, of certain disaster, is when the message of the gospel says, but God, because of his great love for you, gave you Jesus, the man of sorrow who is acquainted with grief, because he loves you. He loves you. And this Jesus, unlike Jacob, did not judge by what his eyes saw, by what was attractive to him, but he judged with equity and righteousness and for the glory of God. He loved you. Let me ask you one more question. What problem right now are you being called into in which God's sovereign will in the face of human sinfulness is the only solution that there is? What problem is that for you right now? Children of God, dearly loved by your Father. God's sovereign purposes are not thwarted by human sinfulness. And there's a promise that undergirds that for you and me as well. Because before Jesus went to heaven, what did he say? He said, behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth.